Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Andrea Ross. Her memoir, Unnatural Selection, about her years as a wilderness guide searching for her biological family, was published by Kevin Carey Press in 2021. Her writing has appeared in Plowshares, The Huffington Post, Terrain the Conversation, Mountain Gazette, and many other outlets. During the 1980s and 1990s, Andrea worked throughout the American West as a wilderness guide, a National Park Service ranger, and a backcountry search and rescue leader. She is a faculty member in the University Writing Program at UC Davis. Welcome, Andrea. Thank you. I'm so glad that you're here, and I'm really excited to dive in to talking about your memoir and what you've learned about memoir in the intervening time since you released yours. So can you talk a little bit about what made you decide to write your memoir? Sure. I was grappling with the trauma and the sadness of not having access to my biological origins because I was adopted in a closed adoption, which means that uh, nobody gets to know anything about the other party, Mm -hmm. my biological parents, me, even my adoptive parents. And so I was thinking about that a lot and trying to come to terms with things just in my own personal growth. And in doing so, I was talking about it to friends and acquaintances. And I got a lot of pushback from them about it. Like Mm. uh, when I was trying to explain to them what I see as the particular brand of loneliness that adopted people experience when they're denied knowledge of their origins, people would say things like, well, everyone's lonely. You're no different. You know, we're all born alone, etc. And mm-hmm. uh, that really cut me to my core because the adoptee experience is a singular one that's I just find is not widely understood or acknowledged. And so I decided to write a book to try to explain that <laughs> that mm-hmm. feeling mm-hmm. so that people would just have more of an understanding about it and have more compassion towards it and just just be better informed about how adoption can affect people. When you were growing up, you know, did you have any books or resources about this? Because I feel like I know I don't know a lot about adoption. I know more now than I did growing up. But I feel like the way people kind of interact with adoption and understand how to talk about it is different now than even it was 10 or 20 years ago. Yeah, I think you're right. No, I did not have any resources at all and and that was pretty common and i also my parents my adoptive parents didn't have resources there were mm-hmm. no books there were no there was no map or guidelines or anything about yeah. you know that your kid is you know has a different set of circumstances than a non-adopted kid would have and yeah i didn't really ever think much about being adopted until i was in my young adulthood and then it became a really big deal to me for a number of reasons and that's when i started see- seeking out information about how you know how other people have dealt with being adopted and you know coming to terms with their own identity that have been kind of 
cut off, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Uh, early on. It's interesting how that happens, how we, a lot of us can experience those moments of realizing we need to address something from our past or something in our family or our personal history. And then once we decide that we need to, it kind of, in my experience, doesn't go away until you do. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, yes. I think you're totally right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting that that was when it happened for you. And, and just on a side note, were your parents receptive to this idea of you writing about the experience my adoptive parents yeah um, yeah they no they never tried to you know thwart it or anything like that although I have to say and this is something that comes up I think for a lot of people in writing memoirs I was scared to to do a lot of the writing because I didn't want to hurt anybody's mm-hmm. feelings you know mm-hmm. At, while at the same time, I really felt a strong need to speak my own truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and those two things, you know, as I'm sure you've found in writing mm-hmm. your own memoir, those two things really tug against each other constantly. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when m- most memoirs deal with, with difficult issues. And so it's one of the main things that I think memoirists confront is how do we speak our truth how do we deal with the fact that we're not going to make everybody happy in, in writing our, in I writing who we're going to make happy yeah <laughs> yeah no I think it's really an important point and I have a feeling it's gonna it's gonna be something we talk about a lot on this series just mm-hmm. this idea because I I've actually heard from some memoirists when this question came up that they would wait they wanted to wait until the people their story concerned were gone yeah. Uh, before they published anything. So so, so when you decided to write the memoir, uh, had you written memoir type of essays before or any of that kind of writing? Well, I had gotten an MFA in poetry. <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, I was trained in poetry and I did a lot of writing, academic writing for my grad school experience. But, you know, very little creative nonfiction, personal essay, that kind of thing. And so part of my experience with writing memoir was getting pushback from my own self about like, 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 <laughs> oh, who tell are... me about that. Yes, yeah, go right? ahead. Who are you to think that you could do this? You're, you don't, you don't know what you're doing. You know, like, that's what mm-hmm. I was telling myself. And luckily, I was in a really wonderful writers group. Uh, I was living in Philadelphia at the time. And they were just like, get over it, get over yourself, Andrea, just, <laughs> just just do it, just shut up and do it, you know, and they told me that numerous times, and it really helped, and I don't, I'm quite sure that that, the book never would have gotten written if they hadn't mm. kept telling me, like, just write it. <laughs> You're <laughs> just, lucky to have them. Oh my gosh, I was so lucky to have them, yeah, yeah. Yeah, how long would you say, and I, people ask me this question, and I, I feel like it's hard for me to answer, I've never really sat down and, and estimated it, but how long from start to finish, roughly, from the moment you decided, okay, I'm going to do this, and then all those little hiccups where you felt like you shouldn't do it, to the book in your hands, how long was that process? Oh, so long. And I think that's pretty <laughs> common. Um, yeah. From the time that I started writing it to the time I got the call from the publisher saying mm-hmm. we want to publish your book was probably 10 years. And then wow. it was another mm-hmm. two years before the book came out so yeah Mm. because they just had a really long publication lead time so yeah it it was forever (laughs) it took forever (laughs) so next time you could just say forever so did anything did anything change in the manuscript I get this question sometimes too because it took so long that time that elapsed time by the time it was ready to come out and you're doing edits and maybe the last final stages of, of getting it ready for print 
Did you change anything vital or significant in the manuscript? No, just I, I would just say some details that when I had beta readers read it, say, especially people who I was writing about, you know, they would be like, oh, actually, you know, they would happen, you know, my dad actually said this or, you know, so mm. little things like that, but not, um, not, not major things, not so much. Mm-hmm. No. Right. So your perspective on events hadn't really changed very much. I don't think so. I mm-hmm. think that, you know, I did a lot, I just did a lot of reading and a lot of research and a lot of therapy, to be honest. Um, <laughs> I'm right there with you. I can say, I can check mark everything you just said, because I yeah. do, I, I, we should actually do an informal poll uh, for memoirs, how many of them have been in therapy and for yeah. how long, because I think that's a pivotal, it's crucial, actually. Yeah. self-exploration. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think I was going into it with a pretty fully, formed idea of how I wanted to portray it mm-hmm. you know it was not uh, I didn't go into it unexamined mm-hmm. I, I I think the examination happened as my life unfolded and I just was an avid journaler I kept mm. journals really really religiously and so I would go back in writing the book I would go back into the journals and mine them for specific events mm-hmm. for specific locations you know, for things like that, like the quote unquote yeah. fa- facts, you know. But by the time I was doing that, I, look, going back into the journals to mine them, I had already done a lot of the sort of therapeutic work of like coming to terms and putting a framework around what all of that meant, mm-hmm. how, how I was going to move forward in my life with this mm-hmm. new information, etc. So, yeah, it's kind of a two level, two, two pronged formation I guess Mm -hmm. and can you share a little bit about your memoir for people who are interested in learning a little bit about it before they get it or can you talk a little bit about you know what makes it different from other memoirs anything you want sure the subtitle of my memoir is uh, a memoir of adoption and wilderness and it's you know a lot of people are like how in the heck is she going to intertwine those two things (laughs) Um, and so I would say just off the bat that that's one thing that makes it different than other memoirs is that there's there's lots of there are many adoption memoirs many Mm -hmm. of which I have read and loved and have found extremely important in my own growth Um, and there are lots of nature memoirs too Mm. but so to my knowledge (laughs) there are none that that uh, intertwine adoption and and wilderness or backcountry experience and so in a nutshell the book is about the decade that I spent doing outdoor jobs so as a wilderness guide as a park ranger etc while I kind of ruminated on and and began to search for um, and eventually reunite with my biological parents from whom I had been separated at Mm -hmm. birth and and how those two actions informed each other you know what did wilderness have to do with with adoption search or with adoption adoptee identity why did why did those Mm. two things kind of happen at the same time in my life and they they definitely Mm. sort of relied on each other in terms of my my personal you know understanding of identity so mm-hmm. that's, and that's I think that's really interesting about. too because that reminds me which I, I get reminded of quite a lot when I think about memoir and talk to people is that your story is different because you're your only you're the only Andrea Ross who who did this but also you, you know your connection to your wilderness 
component of your life is very unique to you. And so a different memoirist could have had a similar outdoor experience as you did, but might not have tied it in the way you did. And so the wilderness and the landscape and that journey meant something to you that resonated in such a way that you could bring it into the memoir is a very important part. Yeah, well said. Yeah. And actually, since you you mention it, I'll I'll bring up Cheryl Strayed's memoir, Wild, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which came out uh, when I was in the middle of writing mine. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I bought it in hardcover, even though I had no money, you know, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I'm going to support this, this, you know, this memoir coming out. And I read it hungrily and I loved it. And I still love it. But I was also kind of dashed a little bit because I yeah. thought, oh, my gosh, she scooped me, you know. Sure. <laughs> I was Cheryl just going to ask you. Me, yeah, yeah. You know, but eventually I came to think, well, you know, she, what she's doing is paving the way for memoirs like mine, mm. you know, mm-hmm. because hers essentially is at its core a, a memoir about uh, how a young woman heals from the grief of losing her mother <laughs> mm-hmm. via wilderness experience and that's you know at its core that's also the thing that my my memoir speaks to um Mm -hmm. and so I thought is there enough room in the world for two of these and the answer is yes there's enough Mm -hmm. room in the world for many of these because like you said you know each person's experience is is unto itself it's unique unto itself and Mm -hmm. so you know as long as the writing is compelling and true to the singularity of that person's experience then I think there's room in the world for you know an indefinite number of those kinds of things. So in terms of writing the natural world and rendering your environment are there are there tips that you can offer? Are there any kind of universal suggestions you can give writers who are also working with landscape or the natural world? Yeah, so my opinion about that is that it's it's uh, two-pronged. It's really important to get the science right, meaning that it's important to do the research necessary to accurately name what's there, the, the, what kind of rocks in particular, what kind of rock formations are there, uh, what are the actual plant communities in a particular landscape, what kind of weather systems, you know, it's, you, it's important to be really accurate about the science of the, of the, the work. And I, I learned that from Gary Snyder when I was in, in my MFA program about just being very specific about naming the natural world. And then the other component to that, I think, is that it's important then to connect those scientific facts and information with the human experience of the place. So Mm. not just the objective, like there is this kind of rock, there is this kind of, (laughs) you know, weather pattern or whatever, but like what effect that has on the human experience on the on whoever is in the scene at the time Hmm. for example um that's the way it occurs to me to do it and Mm -hmm. so and you see that a lot in my book about you know about my response to various facets of the natural Mm -hmm. world Mm -hmm. Um, I love that I, I hadn't really thought of that before and I think this is part of that idea that what is affecting the looker, the viewer, the the person experiencing it and writing it is important to them. And so by highlighting what you see, you're making it important for the reader too. 
Right, and it helps develop the character of that person mm-hmm. who's in this scene. Yeah, so it's a, because there's way. such yeah, there's so much to look at, right? There's so much to observe. But you're, are you saying in a way that what you notice as the memoirist is particular to you, and because it's important to you, you're spending time on it, which helps the exactly. reader understand what what who you are. Right. Right. Let me talk a minute about poetry. Your your work as a poet and how that how that affected your work as a memoirist. Can you talk a little bit about that connection? Yeah. Um, well, interestingly, the very first memoir I can remember reading and was in like the mid nineties was Mary Carr's Liars Club. Yeah. And uh, you know, and she sort of kicked off the 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 memoir renaissance i loved that book and for many reasons but one reason was that she also has the sensibilities of a poet as well as a as a prose writer and i loved the way that she you know just had beautiful language in there as well as a really compelling story and so but and that was actually before i went to grad school although it was when I was thinking of going to grad school, so it, it must have factored in. But some seed got planted in the back of my mind there that, you know, that you could use poetic language or at least a poetic sensibility in writing prose, and that could be very appealing even mm-hmm. to a non, you know, super literary audience. And so I, I do feel like my background in poetry ha- helped me write the, the memoir, because it gave me a lot of tools to use for, you know, just creating descriptive language and using metaphor and and all of those good things you learn in poetry mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. to make the to make the prose even more multidimensional. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny because nothing is wasted. I feel like as a writer all the skills that you have are at your disposal. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Mm. So are there mistakes you find memoirists make that that you kind of notice? You know, I teach creative writing Mm -hmm. sometimes. And so I see a lot of student writing. And I also can draw upon my own experience of making every mistake in the book (laughs) Uh, which is good it's good to make mistakes right because you learn from them so I think that you know the the biggest mistake I've seen the make myself make and and student you know people new to to writing memoir is to write exposition when what the story needs is seen Mm, I mean mm -hmm. that may seem really obvious to many listeners but I think that it happens a lot. We don't realize, new new writers don't realize how much detail and intricacy needs to come out on the page mm-hmm. when you're writing memoir because you think you're telling a story, so maybe you just want to go from eight, point A to point B to point C then to the, the whole narrative arc. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to admit that I still actually, when I'm writing a, a large piece, I still do that. I'll still just write the whole arc in mostly exposition and then with the knowledge that I have to go back in and put mm-hmm. a scene in but otherwise I I kind of get lost in the weeds if I try to write scene and then more scene and then another mm. scene you know it's just too mm-hmm. much detail for my p- little brain to, to hold <laughs> at the same time so if I kind of have a map of the you know the whole 
arc of the story and then I can read through it and know where I need to put in scene so that's that's a mistake I see a lot in student writing and I know that I did it a lot when I was trying to write mine so I would imagine that that's something a lot of people grapple with. I think that it, that is so true, and I had that problem too. One, some feedback I got in one of my earlier drafts from an editor was, you know, you, you should really start these chapters with scene. And, and I wonder, I, I know it's so easy to do exposition, and I, I don't, I'm not quite sure why. Maybe everyone has a different reason for it. For me, it's because I don't always want to jump in to the moment and work so deeply from moment to moment and 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 deal with all of that structure and emotion because it's a bigger toll on me for sure to -hmm. write in scene than it is exposition it's so much easier for me to just blah 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 this is what happened right right so yeah so then I my opinion is if you do that if you just get that out then Mm -hmm. it's down on the paper you've got it you've got it place marked right Mm -hmm. And then you can come back to it later and when you're ready to do the deeper work. Because I agree with you, it does take an emotional toll, Mm -hmm. a psychic toll, all kinds of stuff. So what is something that you find challenging in writing right now? And that could be (laughs) any genre. You know, what is something that you bump up against? Well, I think a lot of things are challenging about writing, although I do (laughs) it like kind of every day. And it is my job, literally. Like, you know, I teach writing and then I go home (laughs) and write, you know. So it's not something that that I... that I don't do, that I avoid, but I still do find myself, you know, feeling like the whole putting your butt in the seat and staying there until the writing is done. That's still hard. <laughs> it's still hard. Uh, for me, I think more specifically, though, is the I'm super bad at self-promotion. And so the, you know, the believing in yourself enough to not only pitch your work or submit it, but then once, you know, one gets lucky enough to get something published to to promote it, you know, and that's just a whole, that's a whole career unto itself. And I, you know, my career is writing. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. not promotion. And so my, it's not my forte. And so that to me, that's been a new, a, a new area of growth, especially mm-hmm. since my book got published is mm-hmm. to, you know, be able to balance my writing work with also you know, believing in myself enough to, to promote it and to, you know, cause if nobody reads it, what's the point of having Yeah. It? And, and, you know, I'm curious about your publisher. Did they, did they ask you to do a certain amount of promotion? Did you take it upon yourself? I did take it upon myself because it's a small press and they mm-hmm. don't have much of a publication or a promotion budget. Mm-hmm. And I just knew, I, I mean, I'm old enough to, to know that <laughs> like it doesn't, magically happen it's not it's not like once you get the book contract all of a sudden the world is going to know about your book like I just am too much of a realist to to think that and so I did a lot on my own they did not like put any kind of you know expectations on me but I just said like here's what I want to do and they're like wow that's a great idea <laughs> you know and then yeah. you know and then my first print run sold out in in under 6 oh, months wow. yeah and they're like we've never had this happen before because we're <laughs> we're a teeny tiny small press and they're like we're going into a second printing for your book you know and wow. so you know and we we were talking about a small first print run <laughs> No, I think you have to crow. I mean, that's that's a great feeling. What a great feeling. It, it is a great feeling. Even if it's a small first print run, it means that, you know, like that hard work of 
both the writing and all the editing and all the you know all the production stuff but also Mm -hmm. the promotion that's so against my little introverts nature you're not alone I think a lot of (laughs) a lot of writers feel this way and I'm wondering I'm wondering what when your book was about to come out was that when you decided okay I need to promote or had you already started to realize you needed to do it oh I knew before that but I what I did drag my heels a Mm -hmm. little bit just because that's how I am. But I knew I had to do it ahead of time. And so, you know, I was pitching related articles to outlets. That's how I got the a piece in the Huffington Post and, mm-hmm. you know, stuff like that. So it helped for sure. To, it, it does. To- it does feel a little. OK, so my whiny, the whiny part of me feels like it's just unfair that not only do we have to write and and make sure our words are good but then and and all the other things involved making the time multitasking like being introspective enough and and dogged enough to really work hard on our manuscripts but then we have to promote ourselves and propel us (laughs) into the world it's just it's exhausting right it's like it's the part of writing I mean of course we can write without doing that stuff we don't have to do that stuff but it seems like if you want anyone to notice you you have to Right, right. Exactly. And like I said before, like, if nobody's going to read it, what's the point (laughs) of doing all of that work? You know, and especially if you're writing something, as I was, that I felt like this was a this was a thing I wanted a message I wanted to get out to the world. This is a thing I wanted people to think about. And so while, you know, I I'm lucky enough that I have a job that that pays a salary so I don't have to rely on the proceeds from my writing, you know, to pay the bills. So I thought, well, you know, what is, what is success then? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, success is not having the book published. Success is having people read it. <laughs> um, for me, you know, even if, you know, I, I make a hundred bucks <laughs> total yeah. for this thing, I just want people to read it and to, you know, consider the experience that I had and consider some of the universal themes that I think can be pulled from it um, and and benefit from those things in some way. And um, so, yeah, if it's not out there in the world, then it's not going, that's not going to happen. And so that's, that's how I finally wrangled myself into doing self-promotion <laughs> that makes sense it sort of was the impetus right like mm-hmm. if you don't do it who will and you know why did you do all this work if people aren't going to read it right, right. Um, do you have some favorite memoirs you'd like to share sure yeah I like I like I said I really loved Mary Carr's The Liars Club and I have a special like niche reading world of reading lots and lots of adoption memoirs but I I really really love memoirs that are about women like women coming of age I don't know have you read Takira Madden's Long Live the Tribe of Fatherless Girls no but that sounds perfect it's so good it's really good and there's lots of really amazing different kinds of adoption memoirs like A.M. Holmes The Mistress's Daughter is really beautifully written um, and then, of course, I mentioned Wild before also. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've I've read that book multiple times. I've taught it with my students. Mm. Um, it's it's really well done, I think, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and just super enjoyable for somebody mm-hmm. like me who like likes to read about wilderness experience as well. Mm-hmm. OK, thank you. And. What is a piece of advice you'd like to share with memoirists or writers in general that you'd like to leave us with? Hmm. 
So I think I, I think I might have mentioned this before, but the, it's just really important to get out of your own way to to not well we all we're all overthinkers right I think Mm. most mostly writers are overthinkers (laughs) yeah Um, which is fine we can do that but Mm -hmm. if we let that get the better of us you know it lets us come up with good reasons to not write like oh I don't want to ruffle any feathers or I don't want to be disowned by my family or (laughs) whatever Mm -hmm. so I think the most important advice I would give is is to just you know take Annie Lamott's advice and write shitty first drafts just get it all out there and then deal with it Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. it's the getting over the threshold of writing for me was or I guess the threshold of not writing for me (laughs) was 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 the hardest thing and like I said with my former writing group um you know they just kept saying just shut up and do it Andrea (laughs) (laughs) and as as crass as that sound you know they were they said it lovingly for one yeah thing. no that's um, love that's right <laughs> yeah you know like they were willing to to hear me whine and also to say okay now go do it you know so the finding ways to get out of your own way and one of those is to have support and and to have account uh, some kind of an accountability system so mm-hmm. um you know if i'm a, i'm in a writing group and i know that i have to show something every two weeks they'll dang I'll sit down and write it because I'm a mm-hmm. I'm a rule follower you know I was a good student and I'm like I'll turn in my homework you know yeah so, same same yeah so what you know whatever it takes to trick yourself into writing is <laughs> is that's what it takes um but the important thing is to just blob it all out there and then work with what you've got yes and I think that's that's exactly that's right and it it reminds me of that idea that you just put it out there just dump it idea dump brain dump whatever you want to call it without judgment just Mm -hmm. without judgment just put it out there you don't have to worry about it yet just get it out and later you can come back and see what you have and and whether or not it's going to hurt someone's feelings no one has to see it yet you know just do it for for the dump (laughs) that sounds terrible Um, okay, before I officially thank you, can you can you share with uh, listeners where to find you? Sure, yeah. Um, I have a website. It's just andrearosswriter.com. And uh, there's links on there to my Twitter and my Facebook author page and also to Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, and the book, there's a link to where to buy the book on there as well. But um, I've found from many friends and family telling me that the fastest uh, way to get it and also preferable to me is to order it straight from Cavan Carey Press mm-hmm. um, because they, you know, there's a guy named Gabriel there who will pull it off a shelf, put it in, a, <laughs> put it in an envelope and send it out the next day awesome. um, because it's not a giant, you know, giant corporate warehouse it's just it's just a bunch of people who really like to um to publish books and um so i i love supporting them and and they send it faster than anybody else (laughs) okay that's good that's important you know most i would imagine that a lot of the people listening do already support small publications and bookstores and all that but if you don't it's a great way to to help everyone who is not giant andrea thank you so much for being my guest and for sharing your experience writing memoir and all your tips for all of us i really appreciate the time you took and and just your honesty and your forthrightness. Oh, thank you. It was so lovely to be here with you and to speak with you. Thanks, Ronit. Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. 
For more about this episode and my guest, please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here. 